good evening to you all and welcome to uh, another Miller Band uh, lecture. Um, we've, since we started to honor the name of uh, Ralph Miliband some nearly 10 years ago, we've had well over 100 major lectures clustered each year around themes. And uh, we have about 15 events planned for this year. The events calendar will show you most of them. And there are several each term. It's a particular pleasure this evening for me to welcome Will Hutton, who I've known for a very long time who I've engaged with over a long time on many issues. And whilst there's a great deal of overlap in our views, there's also been a spiky lot of uh, differences <laughs> as well. And this evening, we wo I welcome him particularly to mark the occasion of his uh, yet another new book, uh, Them and Us. And this is, of course, the theme of his lecture uh, this evening. I should just say quickly that the book is available outside. Uh, we'll be here to sign copies afterwards, so if you want to buy the copy, a book afterwards, you just go through the door, purchase it, come back through that door, and Will will sign your own copy. Will Hutton is one of Britain's, I think it's fair to say, leading economic commentators and executive vice chair of the Work Foundation, where he's worked since 2000, previously serving as its chief executive. He began his career in the city as a stockbroker and investment analyst before moving to the BBC, where he worked on radio as a producer and reporter and on TV as economics correspondent for Newsnight. He then spent four years as editor-in-chief of The Observer, where most of us got to know him well as a household name, as it were, and he continues to write a weekly column uh, for that newspaper. <coughs> Beyond the Work Foundation, Will is a governor, no less, of the London School of Economics, where he's also a senior visiting fellow at LSE Global Governance. He currently chairs the Commission on Ownership and Public Sector Fair Pay Review, and he's also a member of the practitioner of the Practitioner Advisory Board of a new mega LSE journal, Global Policy. And if you don't know about yes. Global Policy, you should, <laughs> and go to globalpolicyjournal.com, one word. Will, of course, has written many, many books which have established him as a well-known public intellectual and commentator on British and uh, global affairs. The books that we all know, or most of you will know, the first one that made him a uh, household name, I think, was The State We're In, which sold how many hundreds of thousand copies, but an indecent number, <laughs> colossal number. Then came The Stakeholder Society, then The State to Come, then The World We're In, was real was there by then running out of titles, you can see, and <laughs> just the first word changes, but the rest stays the same. Uh, and then, of course, a new title, <laughs> The Writing on the Wall, China and the West in the 21st Century, and most recently, as I've just mentioned, Them and Us, Politics, Greed and Inequality, why we need a fairer society. This, of course, is a, raises a critical set of issues in the newspapers and in politics all the time. Everyone claims now they're acting in the name of fairness, and fairness is a conceptual mechanism of justification and legitimacy in the public domain. David Cameron claims it's a fair agenda. His deputy prime minister claims it's a fair agenda. And Will wants to set out a theory of fairness and the centrality of fairness to public life. Well, Will, we very much look forward to hearing your views. Please join with me in giving Will a very warm welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for a very warm welcome. It's actually been um, 
I've spoken a few times in this lecture theatre, and it's got a kind of nice, fresh, modern, well-painted feel to it tonight. <laughs> uh, great pleasure to... And, uh, and um, David, of course, was instrumental in organising um, a seminar uh, here at the beginning of the year where I um, began to dry run some of these ideas on fairness. Um, and uh, I'm sure that as I lay these ideas out, um, um, you're not going to agree with all of them. It'd be astonishing if you did. I hope that you'll agree with most of it. Uh, I guess um, uh, it's work in progress, you know, and if, if it can be made better, let's make it better. Um, there is a view that, that fairness is an idea rather like motherhood and apple pie. Um, we all know what it means. It has, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's like in the eye of the beholder, and uh, it has absolutely no radical bite whatsoever. Um, I hope to show you tonight that it has a bit of radical bite. Um, but just with a context, um, uh, I think the, you know, we're at rather two uh, beginning of the, this decade, Kind of two very important things have happened, and in the last 20 years, uh, which kind of frame I think the political argument and why I think um, this argument about fairness um, is an important one um, to understand and to understand um, its radical intent. I mean, the first thing to say is that um, you know, in 1991, December the 24th, uh, Michel Gorbachev signing away. Um, the USSR and introducing the Commonwealth of the Russian Republics um, was a very profound kind of moment in, in 20th century history. And certainly Deng Xiaoping thought so. Um, six weeks later, uh, in his famous southern tour of China, uh, he proclaimed international communism dead and said, um, we may be socialist, but we can no longer claim with the conviction that we did that it represents destiny. There's been at very least an enormous setback and what I now insist we do, we Chinese and what the Communist Party now champions is not socialism but the socialist market economy and legitimacy in China will no longer come from communism but will come from delivering growth and championing China's nationhood. Um, he also went on um, to advocate kind of an open door policy telling his comrades that when you opened the window for a socialist market economy, some comrades would get richer faster than others, uh, and the flies come in. He was under no illusions um, that a particular notion of how you organized economy and society had, um, had died. Uh, but then we spool forward to October 2008, where another vision of how you organize economy and society also died. And I think the profundity of the financial crisis and the aftermath of it for a body of ideas that um, loosely associated with um, the notion that in particular financial markets are efficient and in general uh, um, free market capitalism uh, as minimally governed as possible and permitted as much capacity to do what it will wherever it will globally uh, that idea also crashed uh, it crashed uh, and perhaps actually the, the, the extent to which it crashed has been disguised by the success of the intervention uh, that took place in October 2008 in Britain alone um, the then government of the day 
uh, offered £1.3 trillion of injections into the banking system, guarantees for bank liabilities, and the whole paraphernalia of, the inter of that intervention. £1.3 trillion was the, was the total cumulative sum. Um, and had that not happened, um, not just Royal Bank of Scotland, whose um, assets and liabilities were £1.8 trillion, uh, would have collapsed, but actually the banks that had got money on deposit would have gone as well. Certainly at that time, in my view, Lloyd's HBOS, which were in the process of completing their merger, would have fallen, and that would have brought down Barclays and HSBC. We would have had the father and mother of slumps in this country. And in the States, hadn't the Americans done what they did, in particular uh, bailing out Citigroup and also writing a blank check to the huge insurance company AIG, um, the American banking system would have collapsed as acutely as it did um, in the early 1930s. Uh, and the success of that uh, intervention has paradoxically shielded Western publics and indeed actually um, the European and American right from the implications of what took place. Because a way of organizing economy and society, the kind of Tea Party's credo, would have led to the father and mother of slumps in the United States and uh, an ongoing crisis in Western capitalism. So two, two ideas of organizing economy and society that, in a sense, anchored left and right have, in the last 20 years, both been shattered. And you know, the battle is on for, well, how do we organize ourselves? You know, what does it mean um, to live a life well? What does it mean to live a life well by values that you have reason to value as an individual man or woman? What institutions and processes should economy and society provide for you? What should the underlying value system be? It, uh, it ain't going to be egalitarian socialism, and it's not going to be libertarians and free market fundamentalism. It's got to be something else. And, that was, and it was pondering that that I um, began to note, in fact, you couldn't not notice it, that actually politicians were falling on this well-fairness. Um, Gordon Brown had a, fought a, an election, uh, last his last election, on a future fair for all. That was the manifesto. The Labour Party, Nick Clegg, said he wanted to hardwire fairness into Britain's DNA. And uh, David Cameron and George Osborne have been harping on about everybody being all in it together and fairness being the leitmotif of, they would argue, of their welfare state reforms. I will argue not in a few minutes' time. Um, but there's no doubt they're all reaching out for this notion. And they're all reaching out for this notion because legitimacy no longer lies in actually being able to say, in saying, well, I'm a socialist, because what does that mean? Or I'm a free market capitalism, because that's lended, that's ended in calamity and collapse. You have to find a, another discourse and, they, and, I, and I wanted to, I mean, I was con concerned that this word fairness was being an all-purpose uh, all word for you know, very different political parties and traditions. And I wanted to get at, you know, what do we mean by, 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 by fairness? Is there something there around which you could build something a bit more solid than everyone claiming it to legitimize the particular point of view? Well, here's where I've got to. And um, a, a better distillation of this will be uh, in the opening chapter of my Fair Pay Review, which gets published in November the 25th. And if you don't, um, I'm almost certain not to get it right this evening, but um, go there if you want it better laid out. It's also in chapters two and three of the book. I start off by saying that um, 
uh, with actually um, the behavioral psychologists and indeed the moral philosophers who've always liked to say priori that there is a relationship we all understand as human beings a relationship between what we intend and the outcome that results and we broadly know what good and bad outcomes are and we broadly understand from a very early age that, that there should be uh, that society's recognition of them should be proportional to their goodness and badness because that, that will have a relationship to the intent thus every society thinks that punishment should be fit to the crime thus uh, I can't think of one and maybe one of you will come up with it tonight but I can't think of a civilization which doesn't represent justice as a pair of scales calibrating uh, a tariff of punishment for um, the proportionate uh, crime punishment being uh, fit for the crime and it's, it works exactly the same with reward it's an embedded absolutely embedded sense uh, uh, that actually we do that there is personal agency that actually uh, we formulate intentions they have outcomes um, those outcomes are good or bad and we expect um, reward or punishment in proportion uh, it's the notion of due desert um, you get what you deserve and you're and it's a very 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 kind of um, fundamental um, human uh, very 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 human kind of belief and actually um, it's um, it's surprising uh, when you start thinking these terms how Kind of, it bubbles to the fore in lots of unexpected ways. I mean, I was uh, when Mike Elm, the headmaster of Tidewell Primary School, was being um, arraigned um, by a combination of the Sun and um, the GMB for having a uh, payment in the last financial year in excess of two hundred thousand pounds a year. How could he? be paid £200,000 a year, more than the Prime Minister who gets £142,500, uh, more than other teachers in a time of financial um, constraint. Uh, what's going on here? Excess, 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 fat cat, Mike, El Mike Elms. And yet when the Sun and the BBC and the Mail all rolled up to start questioning the, um, t the, the parents uh, whose children went to Tidewell School, they couldn't find one who would condemn it because, and, and, and again, it just comes out of people. He's being paid what he deserves. He's turned this school around. He's given opportunities to um, uh, disadvantaged working class children in this part of southeast London that no other headmaster has ever managed to achieve. And as one woman said, he's worth more. He's worth more than 200,000 pounds. He's worth his due dessert. He's, uh, in, in the form I use, I, I uh, He's deployed discretionary effort. Uh, the outcome is there for all to see. We judge it to be worthwhile. It is due dessert. You should get paid 200K. Panorama went to Cleveland a few weeks later, where they interviewed they, the chief constable of Cleveland to get paid 200,000 pounds a year, the highest paid police officer outside Paul Stevenson, uh, the commissioner of the Met. 200,000 pounds to run a police force in a tiny place like Cleveland. It's outrageous. Uh, but again, not, Panorama couldn't get one citizen of Cleveland to come on camera and say that 
to condemn this guy for making 200 grand. Why? Because crime rates in Cleveland have just plummeted. A place that was unlivable has become livable. This guy had done things that was worth his hire. It was his due dessert that he should get paid this sum of money. And so uh, this is the first kind of idea I want to get across, due dessert and the proportionality of it. Of course, you don't want disproportionate reward, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, uh, I think that the, you know, the exam question I was set when I launched on this fair pay, re pay review, you know, is there a case to have some upper, th upper ratios of 20%? Should the upper ratio of top pay to bottom pay be set at 20 to 1? You know, yes, there should be a definite range, but if you believe in proportionality, um, there should be some upper bound to the upper range, should there not? And here I think there's a, it's worth fleshing out that actually you can, you can take a very different view on this, this notion of dessert. You can take a hyper-egalitarian view and say, come on, you know, in Mike Elm's school, um, he's, done, he's a good guy, but no one's worth 200K in this day and age as a teacher, given what's happening to, in the Compton Spending Review. Come on, uh, you can't turn around a school without teachers, without cleaners, without the help of the parents. You know, this is, you know, we're all of equal worth, aren't we, we human beings? Aren't organizations team efforts? Come on. Really, maybe he should get two to one or three to one the average teacher's pay, but 200,000 pounds, that's over the top. And there's a libertarian view of fairness that was, that was, that was expressed, I thought, by, well expressed, by the chair of the academy school movement, who said, if you want great schools, all that matters is a great head teacher. And they're not very easy to find. You've got to pay top pounds to get this. And if you try and constrain us, you'll wreck the academy movement. We must have autonomy, freedom, liberty, and if the market requires us to pay 200, 300, 400,000 pounds a year for a head teacher, we will pay it. A libertarian view of fairness. And what I've tried to do in the book is to say, well, I don't, I don't buy either position. And I've tried to fuse them and say, one should uh, the pay and reward, and actually, you know, uh, how one thinks more generally of, of, uh, of, of fairness, should we try to fuse the best of these two traditions and saying, yep, you get your, your due dessert, so you're slightly with a libertarian, but you're also saying with the egalitarian, within limits, because organizations are, are social, organizations are teams, and you know, as we've just watched with um, Adrian Childs and Christine Bleakley, um, ITV thought, we've got to pay top dollars, we must poach the team um, from the one show, we'll pay them you know, two million quid each, we'll put them on ITV's Daybreak, and that's all you need to do to get a fabulously successful television show. Well, three months later, the, um, the ratings for um, Daybreak are plummeting, below now half a million, I understand, and, and meanwhile ITV, uh, um, the one show presented by people who uh, they thought were not entities, is actually the, its uh, audiences are bounding ahead. Why? Because actually the producers, editors, and organization that houses the one show um, is a much better setup than um, what's happening at ITV's Daybreak. Organizations matter. And uh, if you, it is just false attribution to consider that uh, and, you know, falling for the myth that all that matters is the, is the charismatic presenter or indeed the charismatic leader who can turn things around. Let's keep things bounded. So those are, that's a first set of principles about, about fairness. But there's three more to... Uh, 
Because, um, of course, if you introduce personal agency into, into, into there, you are actually directly challenging a kind of John Rawls view of justice, who, um, who wants to, who will, who, that actually, in the end, life chances are ascribed by economic and social institutions versus outside any individual's control. I mean, try as you can. Try as you can to, ex to exercise personal agency. You're, you're, it's, you're, uh, it's all over, um, really, um, the minute you're born. And the, what you must do is to construct um, those processes, institutions, so it wouldn't, you would be, uh, uh, get a veil of ignorance test, it wouldn't matter to which family you were born. You all know that story. Well, I'm a Rawlsian, except I want to introduce personal agency. And I want to reinterpret um, uh, how Rawls can get to his views on justice by introducing the role of luck. And here I follow the kind of lucky egalitarians, the new moral philosophers, who I think are very interesting indeed. And they make the point, look, you know, in just the same way that I've talked about desert as being an absolutely natural instinct, these guys say, everyone in this room knows the role of luck. I mean, I don't know how many people are here. There must be 300 of you. Thank you very much for telling you to listen to me rambling on. I really appreciate it. Um, anyway, there's 300 of you, and you break 150 men and 150 women, largely. We know that 10% of the women will have the breast cancer gene. And we know that 10% of the men will have the prostate cancer gene. And we know probably that one of you will have the pancreatic cancer gene. But we don't know who. And we know that, we know that nature has dealt those genes and it's just brute bad luck to have been dealt one. What could be more rational than as a group of 300 people coming together and pooling our resource and saying that whoever's got the gene is going to get the care that we all pooled because it could have been any of us. We've got to protect against that brute bad luck. Which is why in the book I argue that um, one of the reasons why the National Health Service, having started off by a great socialist, Nye Bevan, actually has dug its roots deep into Britain, not particularly because it's socialist, but because it's a we share in your brute bad luck service. It's absolutely appealing to a fundamental human understanding about the role of luck. And it's why when someone like Patrick Hannon, the uh, Tory MEP, who uh, uh, got onto Fox News almost all last autumn, campaigning against uh, Barack Obama's health reforms in the States, on the grounds that the National Health Service was the most dreadful kind of expression of totalitarian socialism. Um, Hannon was revealing, as a man of the right, the fundamental barbarism and ahumanity of a view which doesn't understand how human beings react to brute bad luck. Um, and then there is the role of um, good luck. And there's the role of, um, whenever we all know that um, you know, you've done nothing to, uh, uh, to deserve where you are born, high or low. And it, one of the reasons why all civilizations, I mean, the Romans did it, Confucian China did it, feudal Europe did it. Um, and 20th century Europeans and Americans even do it, uh, is to put a modest levy, and arguably it should be higher, but I think it should be much higher, but still not the, more than half, a modest levy on the transfer of assets between the wealthy and their children. 
And uh, that is actually the, the right light to argue that that is a death tax, a completely uh, improper intrusion by the state on the free transfer of assets between the generations, uh, a, a, a fundamental um, disincentive to work because the only reason why one works hard is to pass on one's assets to one's kids. Uh, I say, of course you can pass your assets to your kids in proportion, but actually we want to share in your child's good luck. We want it, which is the underlying moral case for inheritance tax. Inheritance tax isn't a death tax. An inheritance tax is a we share in your good luck tax. So you know, when you start playing around with luck, um, you start, it starts to take you to um, some um, very, very you know, interesting uh, places. And it also, I mean, I want, you know, an enormous amount of human affairs uh, are about protecting oneself against bad luck or trying to share in good luck. See, when um, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, argues that uh, it is his due desert that his total remuneration package should be more than $50 million, um, uh, he is, uh, it's, that's an utterly kind of of libertarian view of fairness, uh, and it is it is in a sense the kind of caveman's view of fairness, the I I I I eat what I kill view of fairness. I uh, I the hunter gatherer leave my cave. I go and hunt the mammoth. I bring back the beast dead as a result of my skill, my endeavour my courage, my athleticism and it's only fair that I gorge myself and a few drops are left for you um, but even the hunter-gatherers encountered good and bad luck however skillful he was, he knew when he left the cave that actually he might, it might just be the mammoth didn't pass his, his uh, you know, the, the way he was going and the other lesser hunters would be luckier than him. Uh, which is why it was advisable when he had a kill to share it, and, and why when they have a kill, they shared it. And what we know from uh, this kind of alleged Darwinian struggle in the wilds of the uh, kind of early hunter-gatherers is that you know, far from it being a kind of an I eat when I kill philosophy, they were protecting themselves against good and bad luck. They shared, they cooperated. And I lastly um, uh, want to make two more points on this. Having said all that, um, there are, um, there are, uh, you know, I can't, you know, some of us are, have got talents that others haven't. You know, um, <laughs> I can't write about international affairs as well as David, never will. Um, I couldn't be as good an economist as Richard Layard. Um, or as good a tennis player uh, uh, um, as him. <laughs> um, it just wasn't in my genes. You know. But if I work on what talents I have, um, it's my due desert, surely, that um, I get some yield from them. So you know, if I work on my luck, my option, if I make my luck, it falls, I think, into the kind of same category 
as being uh, my due dessert. And last but not least, last but not least, nothing is fair without impartial process. Nothing is fair without impartial process. <coughs> the setting of a wage, the election of a political party, the dissemination of news and information, the adjudication of court of law, um, the impartiality of the process uh, is actually fundamental to our recognition that the outcome is fair. It's one of the fundamental reasons um, why a live public realm um, is the custodian of um, fairness values. Now, um, this has pretty, you know, for the left, <coughs> I think fairness has you know, some challenging uh, implications because I think that um, if it's um, people's due desserts um, to get what they've contributed, there is, you start to understand why um, some working class communities, when confronted by um, immigrants, think bloody hell, you know, they're immediately getting citizen rights um, uh, without having paid in. It's unfair, it's not their due dessert. And I think that you know, the European left has been far too negligent of that visceral reaction of working class communities to immigration and too quick to castigate it as being illiberal and not to understand it as a very, very normal human reaction which you have to work to mitigate and recognize its legitimacy rather than deny its legitimacy. It's a challenge for the left. It's a challenge for the left. The, for the right, <coughs> I think there's an enormous challenge about you know, inheritance tax. Um, there's an enormous challenge uh, about their view of the National Health Service. There's also an enormous challenge, I think, about how you do capitalism. Because the view has been that all you had to do was to kind of let markets rip and not worry about disproportionate return. And indeed, uh, when Lord Mandelson famously said that uh, um, he, he couldn't care less uh, about what, some, what somebody made, how they made it, as long as they paid their taxes. Uh, he was making, I thought, an absolute cardinal first order uh, error because you have to ask the question, did this person make their money um, uh, deservingly or undeservingly? And, I, and I, I think that one can say, given personal agency, that the way Philip Green got rich and the way James Dyson got rich uh, can be called deserving and undeserving. There is an undeserving rich, ladies and gentlemen, and an awful lot of them have emerged in the last 15 years in the city of London, um, rigging um, the financial markets uh, and rigging the presses in the financial markets um, to um, skim uh, the cream and create what economists call economic rent, um, from which they have themselves created dynastic fortunes that will last for many centuries. Uh, it was not their due dessert. And it certainly was not their due dessert that when things went pear-shaped in uh, 2008, we had to bail them out. Fundamental unfair capitalism was constructed, and it went wrong. And one of the reasons I argue it went wrong was because it had unfairness and indifference to due dessert and proportionality hardwired into the way it went about its business in the 15 years up to 2008. So, kind of <coughs> New Labour wanted to show how pro-business they were, 
but they didn't have the guts um, to uh, differentiate between the deserving rich and the undeserving rich, or, nor to understand that actually if you want a successful capitalism, it better be a fair capitalism, because that's another proposition that uh, I put forward in the book. And I, I don't argue, as some of the right-wing reviewers have said, that actually um, uh, Britain in the, in the um, middle of the 18th century was a fair place. What I say is it was a less unfair place than anywhere else at the time. And that actually the importance of the European Enlightenment um, uh, in the middle of the 18th century was it constructed an array of institutions that actually um, did two things. One, it broke the stranglehold of crown and church upon entrepreneurship and capitalism. And here, I guess, I follow Marx. Um, but secondly, um, it constructed... Uh, Marx, by the way, uh, I think interestingly, someone who also... And I was very influenced by this when I read his critique of the Gotha program. And there I was, you know, uh, kind of moments in my life. Axel Leonhofer's book on Keynes, a rather big, important moment for me when I suddenly understood Keynesian economics. And another moment in my life when I suddenly understood a big mistake the left has made, reading, Goeth, reading uh, Marx's critique of the Gotha program. A bunch of egalitarian socialists had argued that, the, that you should build socialism around the philosophy of from each according to um, his ability to each according to his need. And Marx just went apeshit and said, you cannot do that. We can get there maybe, comrades, after 200 years of communism. But actually, this offends a fundamental human instinct about due desert. What do you do about workers who shirk? How are we going to incentivize people to give more? And, are people to, and uh, is there going to be no categorization around need? You cannot organize um, a, a, a social society in which you neglect these basic human instincts. And I thought, bloody hell, you know, the early Marx thinks it, and I think it. And I, and I do, I do think that, you know, trying to escape these categories and start to think in these new categories, you know, does open up, as I'm going to try and argue, um, a kind of rather original, interesting way of thinking about economy and society. Come back then to um, capitalism in the middle of the 18th century. Because I think the other thing that the Enlightenment did was to construct an array of institutions, you know, uh, whether it be public universities or science that was peer-reviewed. Uh, the capacity actually to have private ownership, courts which had um, you know, impartial adjudication between commercial contractors you know, and commercial law, an array of institutions which allowed you to do capitalism more fairly than it had been ever done before. And that, it was that alchemy that actually um, set the Industrial Revolution going and has, I think, still continued um, to produce um, the tidal wave of, you know, of scientific innovation which actually is exploited by entrepreneurs in open access societies, challenging incumbents and continually renewing and refreshing kind of economic structures. And I got very interested indeed by um, the role of the importance of general purpose technologies in actually generating um, wealth and actually the circumstances in which general purpose technologies actually take root. A general purpose technology and there were five of them in 1750 and 1900, all of them invented by the British. And there were uh, nine 
between 900 and 2,000, one of which was invented by the Japanese, others invented by the Americans, that actually I had plainly driven um, uh, living standards um, uh, you know, across the world. Um, the railway, the internet, um, the internal combustion engine, um, you, you, know, the, you know what a general post technology is, and you know how transformatory they are. The definition is of a general post technology is a technology that is generic over time, so that the railway uh, is the same today, essentially, in its essence, as the first railway um, in the 1810s. Um, uh, but think of the spillover effects, and think of the capacity within that generic technology to kind of just reach new and new and new capabilities and competencies. And just think of the spillover effects of the railway. This is why it's called a general purpose technology. It's not just a way of getting made to be. It was a way of opening up the United States. It was a way of uh, transforming, as a consequence, um, European agriculture as American agricultural products flooded into Europe. It was, um, without the railway, no Bismarckian uh, Germany and the great bargain between the Junkers and the industrialists around tariff walls to keep out cheap American uh, food. No nation state. Uh, no suburb, um, no tax system, um, no war the way it was fought. A hell of a technology. Um, and these technologies are the um, things that have taken um, living standards, uh, kind of advanced living standards, uh, over the last um, you know, 250 years, and will in the future. There will be more general post technologies um, in the century ahead than in the last 550 years combined. More. There will be, um, uh, whether it's space, whether it's nuclear fusion, whether it's water, whether it's health, whether it's informatics, whether it's pharmaceuticals, the amazing, amazing transformatory advances. And the question is, what are the circumstances in which those advances are going to be made? You know, what are the economic and social structures in which that's going to happen? Because there's a very interesting story about the eternal post technologies. Because there's an interaction always between um, the, a public agency and a private entrepreneur in some way. None of these GPTs have come wholly from the private sector. None. Uh, and indeed, actually, uh, the great, you know, the, the, when. Um, Isaac Newton was saying, you know, well, how can it be that you know, you're so bright? He would say famously, if I see further other men, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Science and technology is cumulative. It goes 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. It jumps across boundaries. But the big point is, is that science has to be generated by public investment. The great, the great, the great scientific advances uh, in the last 150 years have required governments to fund them. It's governments that fund actually the, the, not just that infrastructure, but actually almost the entire infrastructure, soft and hard, in which uh, capitalism flat flourishes. But capitalism itself flourishes if the entrepreneurs have got you know, access to the finance, that the market is open, that the, that the people who they're challenging with the new technology don't fix the market so they can't be challenged. Uh, capitalism has to be understood in that sense as actually entrepreneurs getting their due deserts. Um, capitalism does its business when productive entrepreneurs um, in well-owned companies competing reasonably get their proportionate due deserts uh, for innovating, wealth creating and getting jobs. But there's an inevitable proclivity in capitalism 
for, what I, for bad capitalism, for rigging markets, for monopoly, for rent-seeking, for fooling you, for cheating you, for organizing endemic conflicts of interest. So, think about the financial markets in the last 15 years. Think of um, fabulous Fab Turi, the investment banker at Goldman Sachs, who designed a collateralized debt instrument at the behest of the hedge fund owner, A.G. Poulsen, so that he could buy the credit default swaps on this that would go up if the security he had created went down in value, which it would do if um, Poulsen and fabulous Fab Turi could select enough bad subprime mortgage debt to go into the collateralized debt obligation. That, and they chose the loans, which would go dud. And then Mr. Touré picked up the phone and sold that collateralized debt obligation to IKB Bank in Germany and ABM AMRO Bank in Holland, which was about to be taken over by Royal Bank of Scotland. And all of you are underwriting the losses that this transaction incurred, some hundreds of millions of pounds. Because, of course, <coughs> Mr. Fab Torre was both sides of the transaction. He was actually creating a used car to be sold to people, not telling them that it was faulty, knowing that, um, that his favoured customer, Mr. Paulson, was going to do very, very, very well out of it. Mr. Paulson went on to make more than a billion dollars from the trade, buying those credit default swaps. IKB Bank and ABM AMRO both lost lots of money. When RBS um, took over ABM AMRO, on the balance sheet, the British Treasury found that collateralized debt obligation. That is unfair capitalism. And Mr. Fabulous Fabture doubtless gets um, remuneration that year of an excess of $5 million, I would guess, maybe more. That was how the financial markets were, in essence, structured, embedded conflicts of interest, um, a farcical view of how um, risk should be managed, um, uh, less and less capital, underwriting, an explosive growth of bank balance sheets, and all actually um, uh, and knowing that actually if it all went wrong, um, taxpayers um, in the Western states would actually pick up the tab. There is an embedded tendency in capitalism to go bad on you. And the struggle, as I, as I conceive it, is to ensure that uh, the enlightenment institutions that actually hold capitalism to account and the value system, fairness, um, which makes it less likely to go bad on you, are, um, are consistently operational. But it's not um, you know, well-owned companies and, and a financial system that's fit for, but it's only part of the damn story. A, a fair capitalism can't grow in an unfair society. And here we return to this question of luck. Because I, um, it's whole societies that innovate. The, the captain of the British Olympic team has observed that Britain's capacity in 2012 to compete well in the London Olympics is extremely inhibited because the cohort from which the population from which you are drawing um, the great athletes uh, is so narrow. In particular, some sports like fencing and rowing is really only Britain's private schools where these sports are done. And he makes the point that if you want a, 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 a if, if you want, if the country wants the medals that it thinks is our due desert, it better construct a education and sporting system which allows every kid 
um, to have an opportunity of actually developing their talents because in the same way those cancer genes are just spread around here in this random way so is sporting excellence and to imagine that the top rowers and fencers in Britain will all come from the top 100 private schools is I think a disgrace that we permit even that thought to be uh, unchallenged daily by the fact of our private school system always I, you know, I find offensive and you can build on this point because and here I join up again with Rawls having tried to introduce personal agency into, how, into what we think a fair society is I then make common cause with him about the role of luck and circumstance we know that a child that's three and a half years old in a welfare home will have heard cumulatively 30 million fewer words than a three and a half year old in a professional home. And we know enough about cognitive development in the brain to know that that sets off a chain reaction of complexity and early development of all the appropriate nerve ends in your brain that actually give you a cognitive capability when you're 18 that is inevitably higher than, um, uh, than if you don't hear those words. Similarly, um, that three-and-a-half-year-old in the welfare home will have heard ten times more words of discouragement than the um, kid in the professional home. And neither kid has done anything to deserve this fate. They've just come from the loins of their parents. They, made, they couldn't have made the choice. And it behoves us, not in the name, I don't think, particularly of you know, liberty, equality, or, or fraternity, but it behoves us as human beings, surely, recognizing the role of luck in our lives, to act to do something about that, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be, uh, I don't think, uh, you have to, I don't have to appeal to a socialist creator or a Christian creator. I just do it because I'm a human being. And I'm going to actually compensate you for that brute bad luck. And we have to invent um, instruments and agencies uh, that, uh, that, uh, that do the monumental amount of compensation for the bad luck that befalls kids in the first five, ten years of their life. It seems to me, in a fair society. And that has radical implications for how you organize housing, how you organize education, how you organize employment opportunities, how you organize the pattern of private sector activity in our country. Big, big thing, fairness. Nor can you do it if your public realm is not impartial. Which is why the structure of how we vote and how we hold our politics to account matters so much. The structure of our governance system matters so much. How it interacts with our media system matters so much. None of which, none of the things I'm talking about tonight can even get to first base if we don't have a fair media. I got very exercised at the beginning of, this, of um, um, September by uh, Mr. Murdoch's plan, News Corp, to buy um, the 61% of B Sky B he doesn't already own. 
so you earn 100% of it. By the middle of this decade, um, B Sky B uh, will be generating around £7.5 billion of pay TV revenues out of total projected revenue of the entire TV industry of less than £15 billion. Um, or rather, 10 million subscribers to Sky. We know in the States, uh, the, kind of ca- the cavalier approach to another aspect of um, Sky's or, um, murderous operations, the way that you know, Fox News has become an incubator to the Tea Party movement. I mean, it's a democracy. The Tea Party movement are completely uh, free and must be free to say what they say, but let's have an opportunity to argue against them rather than be shouted at in studios where the... Um, conclusion of the viewer has been pre-rigged by the way it's been all set up Um, it's going to own 40% of UK newspaper circulation that's going to be bundled up so that you can have the opportunity to um, not only renew your Sky subscription but a subscription for um, any of those four newspapers News of the World, Sun, Times and Sunday Times who all have uh, the Times perhaps excuse the Times but the others have a view about the reporting of truth. They set a narrative, and you are, if, the, if you're the object of that, you're slotted into the narrative that's preset by the news desk. It is the construction of a new Orwellian big brother, but in the private sector, an info capitalist with that degree of power. And uh, by the middle of the decade, um, that cross-subsidized from that uh, extraordinary television operation. By the way, that's where a piece of productive entrepreneurship, taking genuine risk, which is what Mr. Murdoch did in 1989 when he set up um, um, Sky. And that was a real entrepreneurial thing to do. But look how he's transmuted over a period of 25 years, by the middle of 2015, into the incumbent monopolist using politics and influence to defend his position from all uh, from, from, from potential challenges. There's nobody who could buy um, the premiership rights to challenge him. Nobody's going to be able to revive to buy the TV rights from a, a home box office to challenge him. If you were a Disney or a foreign competitor who wanted to get into our market, it's all sewn up with the connivance of First New Labour and now the coalition government. Um, but you can't get to a fair society that without a fair media. And so the, 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 the emergence of uh, newspaper circulation that will be more than half British newspaper circulation by 2015, maybe 60%, because no one can challenge this. Not the Telegraph, not Guardian Observer. I'm on the Scott Trust, which owns the Guardian Observer. We ain't got a television network to cross-subsidize us on that scale. Not the Mirror. No one's got pockets deep enough. So you watch the emergence of an, or, or, uh, a, an Orwellian private sector info-capitalist big brother and as, I, as I, I'm trying to get an eye off the ground about constructing a fair society that needs to innovate as a whole society have disproportionate uh, kind of effort to alleviate the brute bad luck of the disadvantaged <laughs> trying to develop ideas about, good, about what productive entrepreneurship and a good capitalism might look like what kind of hearing will those arguments get so, you know, fair society, start to see how a rather simple notion that you think, well, that's just apple pie and motherhood, you know, and 
and uh, you know, wills off one of his riffs and you know, you should, you know, stick to his knitting with stakeholding and you know, go on for inequality. And, you know. But I think that I think that this uh, I fairness agenda, you know, opens up um, a rich language, and what's more, I think it speaks to most people because most people instinctively get it, uh, and they kind of know that in this territory lies things that actually uh, give them offence and also um, give them reward. And last but not the least, I think the same ideas, and here I'm much less versed than, than David, I think some of the same ideas have to be applied abroad. I mean, at Korea and the G20, um, everyone's gathering to try and limit the degree of the Chinese to have huge trade surpluses and the Germans to have huge trade surpluses. And actually, the Americans are saying, we equally can't have huge trade deficits. If we're going to have an international monetary system that works, we've got to have some proportionality, have we not? In who makes services and who makes deficits? I take some responsibility to manage that. It's a fairness doctrine. It was a fairness doctrine at Copenhagen. Our generation you know, cannot deliver to the next generation um, atmosphere with so many particles of carbon per million in it. Otherwise, global temperatures will rise by 6 degrees centigrade by, by 2100 and the intergenerational bargain is colossally and totally unfair. It's not my kids' due dessert that they should have to put up with the consequences of my generation's uh, disproportionate actions, is it? So I think this discourse is, I hope you will agree, a bit more than apple pie and motherhood. Um, I, think it, I, think it, I think it opens up... Um, a really uh, important discourse given what's happened to both free market fundamentalist capitalism and socialism. Um, I hope that you know, you'll agree with me when you read the book. Thank you very much. <laughs>
cute gentleman right at the back there with his hand up. Yeah. When we look at the, um, the financial crisis, isn't the prognosis pretty bad in the sense that the world came together or the G20 came together in concerted action in terms of stimulus in the face of potentially catastrophic financial crisis, but the further we get, from the, uh, get away from uh, that financial crisis, the ability to actually introduce the necessary international financial regulation, uh, the will to do that is just fragmented and gone. And that basically now we're all, all we're facing is potentially other crises and other bubbles that will burst and cause us equal harm. Like over here. Perhaps everyone could say who they are. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm Anna Wishart from the Centre for Global Governance. Um, I had a question about your um, talk about the fairness agenda in terms of the low pay. One of the arguments that's been widely circulated is the unfairness of the idea of a living wage. So in terms of the um, coalition government's discourse about fairness, do you think there will be any traction in using that discourse in order to increase the minimum wages for workers so that they're able to live in, uh, have a balance in terms of fair society. Good. Um, we just take one more? Are you okay so far? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, just the uh, question questions there. here, actually. No, not going to answer very well, but anyway, do my best. I have Ed. Um, I'm just wondering, when you, when you use the term fairness, um, you're kind of saying that's a, a universal value and sort of assuming that p two people see fairness in the same way. Um, and how do you feel if, uh, if people could look at two completely opposite situations um, and come out with very different conclusions, both on the understanding that they're fair and you know, who's going to decide who's deserving and undeserving? Okay, we'll just take one more over here and then we'll come back for another round in a moment because I've got a whole stack of questions for you, Will. And I think, <laughs> I think it's unfair that I haven't had a chance to raise them. About what um, you get, what you deserve, um, Tesco's chief executive gets paid 7 million and uh, staff checkout gets paid 12,000. What do you think of the pay gap? That's, 200, that's 900 to 1. Do you think he gets paid what he deserves? Okay, Will. Um, brief answers, yeah? Yeah, brief yes. answers. Uh, Look, great we'll questions. Because, and and, uh, you know, none of this flies unless... Uh, um, I th and I... Um, on the environment, look, I mean, I... Um, and I think I said at the end what I, what I think about the environment. I mean, I... I, uh, I, I do think that... Um, example I often give here is what's happened in China in its 11th five-year plan when um, essentially carbon dioxide emissions went up by three and a half gigaton, um, which is um, between 2005-2010, that's equivalent to the total emissions of the EU. And uh, that wasn't the plan. And both the director and deputy director of the Environmental Protection Agency in China say <coughs> that it is they don't use the word democratic institutions, but they say that the weakness of China's institutions in holding polluters to account uh, is the alpha and omega of why this has happened. 
you, know, you can pollute without any whistleblowers. You can pollute and not be taken to court. You can be, you can, uh, you, you can just not obey the rules. You, because if you get the right side of the party leader, and um, I, I think that the it's, you know, one of the reasons why um, you know the, um, uh, the my contribution to the environmental debate can't be as good as Nick Stearns, you know. Who I know, he can't be as good as the great people who've written about the environment. You know, the best contribution I can make to this environmental debate is to say, you know, here's another way into it. Here's another way into thinking about how to get better environmental outcomes um, than the one we have, and if anyone understand why it's been so hard to uh, mobilise opinion against uh, this threat. So, I mean, I, um, you know, and I don't want to, you know, use what little time is available for me to, you know, only agree with people who know greatly more about this than I do and who have convinced me there's a problem. But I do think that this way of looking at it is helpful. Um, on um, low pay and on Tesco's pay, look, you know, I, I do think the, um, I, know, I know it's interesting that Boris Johnson um, is very keen on living wage, the Mayor of London, 75 an hour. Um, <coughs> and um, I, I you know, once you start unpacking these fairness doctrines, it has become, you know, it is, you know, there is a powerful case for um, that, for the wage, the, the, the due desert of anybody who works should be some minimum living standard. Um, and the only um, qualification to that can be that um, there are some costs in the system that someone is bearing that are not that you deserve as a consequence of this one. Um, and um, you know, that's where the argument goes. And I think that's, so I think that, you know, I, I, I think that um, the argument in favor of living wage is, in, in fairness terms, is extraordinarily powerful. And that's why Boris Johnson has gone for it and used it. And, has, um, and by the way, it seems to be getting some traction, in London at least. Um, but there's a different, there's, a problem also that the living wage isn't $7.85 an hour around the country. You can, the living wage in um, Cleveland is probably about the minimum wage of $5.93 an hour. And the minimum wage in the Isle of Wight or Cornwall or parts of Wales is probably even below the minimum wage. So you then get into a very tricky, very tricky argument, which is that. Um, the case of the living wage is you must sort of live on it, but actually you don't need that much in different parts of the country. And are you going to accept that, you're, that the unfairness, not having the same wage, is the price you pay for a living wage everywhere? Um, tricky argument. Um, there's, um, I think um, Terry Leahy is a fantastic CEO. And it is his due dessert that he makes a lot of money for his job. I, the fact he gets paid as much as seven million pounds is grotesque. Um, and I think that the last, um, uh, the last, um, um, the last 15 years has seen an extraordinary thing happen in the CEOs in, in Britain and America in particular have got paid not base pay. It wasn't base pay that actually took. Um, um, Terry's pay so high. It was um, all the share options and all the long-term incentive plans and all the share bits he got. 
and his base pay, I think, was probably about seven or eight hundred thousand pounds, for about thirty times um, an ordinary Tesco worker. Um, and w w why um, this equity component of compensation has grown so high, um, and and the social norms that have permitted it, and the fact there's not a more urgent debate about it. Um, uh, is highly bad news but actually I can open up the conversation with this fairness language I can say I think it's his due dessert that he makes a lot lot more than a Tesco checkout girl because actually he's worth a great deal more to Tesco than she is but he's not worth 7 million and I, you know and you have to, that's where you have to go with this you, it's, not, it's not a flat earth philosophy it's a, it's a philosophy about proportionality um, What's fair, what's deserving, what's undeserving? We debate it. Democracy is your process. Um, and, you know, uh, we arrive at a sense of proportionality. I mean, I think that uh, I, can, I could justify, justify, you know, a Tesco, a CEO making 30, 40, maybe even 50 times more than, you know, the lowest paid person. I certainly can't, I think 900 to one, it's so disproportionate, it becomes undeserving. And only when you have a debate of that type can remuneration committees and newspapers start to inform the people making these decisions in a free capitalist society about what the public think are reasonable. Um, and last but not least, is it fair for England not to have a parliament and for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to have one? Um, I think that the, I think, uh, good point. I think the House of Commons has got um, 650 MPs of whom 550 or 540 come from England. Um, if you're Scots or Welsh or Northern Irish, you think it is an English parliament already. Um, <clears throat> and it's certainly, certainly it's, it's English MPs who set the weather for um, Scottish and Welsh defence and foreign policy. It's, a, it's an unstable bargain, I, an unstable settlement, but I, I don't think it's so unfair, it's now completely unstable. But you take a different view on it. Okay, I got my hand up. So I lost myself, I think, crash. But we'll come to you in just, in just a moment. Let me just, since, since I want to ask you about, a bit more about the sort of philosophical content of the argument and the, the theoretical basis of it, really. And this is not a disagreement that fairness is important or not important. We both think fairness is important, although I, want, I would make arguments in politics more from the basis of self-determination, equality, and democracy than from the point of view of fairness. But... You want to <coughs> fly the flag on fairness. <clears throat> so here's, the, here's three questions. A statement and three questions very quickly. The core beliefs you set out are due desert, protection against brute bad luck, limit excess good luck, talent should be rewarded in some sense proportionately, and this can't operate without impartiality, a process that's yeah, impartial. Yeah. That is your argument. Right. Three questions. One. He's going to get me, isn't he? I just feel it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think you... I'm myself in the blow, you know. I think you can come back on, on some of these questions. One is, how, on this basis, <laughs> how, how on the basis of these points made thus, can you discriminate between the policies of David Cameron, Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband? Because all of them claim the mantle of fairness, and all of them would be at home with some of these principles, if not all of them. So how do you discriminate between the raging debates going on in the different positions in British politics now on the grounds of the principles you have set out? Secondly, how do you go from these principles to specific policies without additional value judgments, which is the question you raised up there, 
without additional criteria, because the question is about fairness and intervening on behalf of children, let's say, whose circumstances, genetic or social, have created a situation that we would regard as bad luck. Which bad luck? How bad luck? How much bad luck? Where do you draw the boundaries? How do you operate those boundaries? And that's where the arguments are. So the principles alone don't resolve that dispute. Thirdly, don't all these ideas ultimately have such hermeneutic complexity, that is cultural specificity, that in a sense they carry enormous cultural weight, which in a sense undermines their universality. Tribal societies, Libya, kingdoms, Saudi Arabia, democracies, the US, all have concepts of fairness that operate in them, Islamic finance versus non-Islamic finance and so on. But they can generate on the basis of those principles and other values completely different systems that they consider fair. Okay. Right. And the lady That's over pretty there. good, wasn't it, really? You know, nearly uh, a knockout <laughs> blow. But I'm standing. Good, you are. Yeah. We want to pick up a few more questions, then you can deal with those. Yeah, uh, gentlemen at the front. Oh, yes, you, you, you first. You uh, good evening. Thank you very much for, for the talk. Uh, my question is very technical is also related to fairness and I was wondering how fair it is for students to pay for school and for university and for a master's and then end up doing unpaid internships <laughs> and, and maybe here you can also talk about the unpaid UN internships thank you okay then uh, gentlemen at the front yes I would like to ask you a question, which is whether you would agree with me that there is one unobserved aspect, which is the question of the greater scale of operation now than ever by a factor of perhaps thousands or tens of thousands when it comes to institutional complexity or the complexity of governance and so on. Uh, your opening remarks referred, I think, to John Rawls, who qualified his vision, and perhaps there's some parallel with Adam Smith, um, that it depended, the moral dimension would be, to some extent, shaped by its institutions. However, <clears throat> the population of the world uh, in, in that intervening period has increased by, um, I don't know, a hundredfold, a thousandfold, and the compound complexities by increased populations and also more than that the reach of local economies which were very local indeed um, is such that the complexity is totally unmanageable and of course we always have outcomes which are totally unpredictable so I put it to you that the question of scale is central uh, if we just pass the mic along to uh, Robert Wade here. Yeah. Thank you, Robert Wade. Um, a question about the media. Um, the question is, do you think that there is a future for quality media, underlying quality media, um, in the context of profit-maximizing corporations, or do you think that there will only be a future for quality media in the context of either things like the Guardian Trust, that is where there's cross-subsidy within the trust from cash cows to the, me the quality media, or in the context of 
a new form of corporate organization, uh, low-profit, limited-liability companies, that is, companies which uh, have to make profits, they're not non-profits, but which have a ceiling on their profits, so they, uh, profit rates, and they can't be taken over by, in hostile takeovers and made to uh, come under the uh, ownership of people like Rupert Murdoch. Do you think that the future lies in new forms of corporate organization which don't require the media company to maximize profits? Okay. Um, well, I'm going to just take a couple more, and then you give you a few okay, minutes okay. To, to come to some views. Yeah. Okay, um, this is a question that relates quite yeah, specifically to me, maybe. But as an, a GCSE student at the Henrietta Barnett School, which I'm not sure if everyone knows is meant to be the top state grammar school in the country based on GCSE and A-level results recently. And I was just wondering whether you think it's fairer for teachers' wages to be proportional to the A-star to C grades for GCSE and A-level that are achieved by their students, or do you think that this, is, this would be more unfair because it would be the teachers taking glory for maybe for the work that the students themselves have done and for teachers that don't have the ability to, well, are unable to work at the top schools, whether it be unfair for them to earn less. So I was just wondering... Was that how Henry Tavarnett do their remuneration no, teachers? No, I don't think so, but it's come up amongst teachers and I beg your pardon? I don't know how they do it personally, but um, teachers have raised that question to us before, and I was wondering where you... Whoa, there's knotty questions here on fairness, aren't I, I hope... Great question. Uh, we uh, hope you apply to the other question. seat. Uh, yes, yeah. over there. One mic over there. Are you currently at Henry Barnett? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, Will, can you say something about are we at the beginning of the demise of universal benefits and um, how that relates to, to fairness? That's certainly the discourse that it's been shrouded in anyway. Thank you. And a last question up. Yeah, gentlemen. Yes, David Cameron, um, I believe, um, from the newspapers, has never actually got a job himself through uh, meritocracy. In other words, his very first <laughs> job apparently was, uh, he was, after being declined for a job at Conservative Research Department, was uh, uh, told by somebody at Buckingham Palace that he should, uh, be, should, he should, be, he should be taken on. Um, he's never actually done, I understand, any job in the real world, apart from his work with the Conservative Research Department. George Osborne, I think, claims that he's done two months' work in the um, toweling department, I think it was, of Selfridges. Um, they both stand to inherit um, substantial amounts of money, both, all of which will be free of any form of inheritance tax. Um, how do you think that your ideas that you've uh, proposed tonight are going to be received by both them, the cabinet, which is similarly uh, as unfair in terms of its uh, composition and in the composition of, the, of parliament, and furthermore, how do you think you will be, um, uh, how can I put it, how, how would you be um, uh, uh, shown to the general public given that your views will be um, uh, propagated via uh, media proprietors who showed their, uh, their, I mean, always a Nazi-type propaganda during the course of the election this year with some of the scare stories that were made. <laughs> okay. wow. Will, you have a lot of questions. Yeah, there. there's some really good, there's some look. Look, you've got ten minutes to come uh, to the <laughs> Well, I'm going to come to yours last. Um, 
I'm not trying to but look, there's some um, uh, I, uh, universal benefits. Uh, look, um, I I um, uh, didn't spell it out enough, perhaps, in what I might talk. It wasn't time, even though I took a good 60 minutes. Um, and the reason I'm kind of beverageian on this is that is that I think that you know the the oh, I'm strongly for social insurance, um, and I think it was a because I think that, um, as Beveridge says, you know, in his 1942 Beveridge report, um, if you, if we can organize um, the, the great risks of life on the insurance principle, you know, the risk of unemployment, the risk of disability, and the risk of old age, you know, uh, and we all pay in, and we all get the universal benefit out. It was a way, as Beveridge said, you know, dealing with brute bad luck. And you know the principle, the principle of social insurance, luck, and universal benefit, and never getting oneself into the position where, because a if a benefit is financed by the taxpayer, sooner or later someone's going to say, um, "Well, why are my taxes going on this ne'er do well? Why are these people making lifestyle choices about not working or about living on incapacity benefit?" Um, you know, people in housing estates watch um, the system being gamed. And they say, my taxes, my honest-to-God taxes have been used to um, subsidize you know, some teenage girl who's got pregnant twice or three times, whatever it might be. I mean, these events do happen, and it undermines the legitimacy of universal benefits. I am profoundly concerned that um, um, first the Labour Party, and then the Conservative Party, and the new Labour in office um, have permitted the social insurance principle, which is the national insurance payments, to be completely corroded. And uh, you know, if we're going to protect universal benefits, I think one has to, one has to um, underpin it um, with the social insurance principle. And uh, that's why I think universal benefits are in better shape in the Nordic countries uh, and in Germany, uh, which do that, by the way, than they are here. Um, and I urgently think that... Um, uh, I'm hoping that Ed Miliband's Labour Party uh, will start talking these terms. Um, you know, a brilliant question about is it fair to pay teachers uh, by result, <laughs> which is effectively it, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and here you get into kind of what's the, what's the population you're talking about. I, I actually think that an education system... Um, that you, what you, the the incentive that you then create, is uh, an unfair incentive for the average and the less average, because all all um, teachers will be anxious to make certain that the mix in their classes is one that produces um, the best monetary result for them, and while that may be um, their individual due desert. It's not the due desert of the cohort of children attending that school or living in that area. But then you just swap the principle to value-added, Will, and not highest achieving, because which is what a lot of the schools do in reporting their performance. They don't do it just in relation to, to grades, but the uh, a ratio of children coming in from various backgrounds and value-added and results in relation could, to that. Yeah, you, if it was... So that, would yeah, sustain yeah. Her, that would sustain the argument. That would, sustain, actually, that would sustain the argument, but, yeah. But, but give it a... Sustain the, the, the principle of the argument. But yeah, if you, had a, if you had a value-added system, then, I mean, you know, I think you could... That would, that would work. 
You're just a kind of raw thing, you know. Um, if you did it on a value-added basis, I think probably you could argue it would be it would be a, it would be a, a, quite it would be interesting. I mean, I, I'm I lean towards it more if you're talking about the the value you add given the 30 or 20 children in front of you. Um, then it would seem to me that the the payments a, a payment system um, linked to those consequences would be that teacher's due dessert. Yes. Um, Robert Wade on on media. I mean, I, I think that unless we have a, um, uh, I think you're, I mean, I basically agree with you. I think that I think that the we're watching the emergence of info capitalism. We're watching the emergence. You can see it in the states with um, uh, Fox News. You can see it in Italy uh, with Berlusconi, and we're watching it emerge here. Um, and it's one of the most troubling aspects, I think, of of um, liberal democracies in the first decades of the 21st century and the way that actually what, that, what that's doing to public conversations, um, the capacity of our democracies to deliberate, um, and you have to protect um, the, the um, debate and dissemination of impartial knowledge and information, and you have to do that through upholding, it seems to me, the BBC, and you have to do it by having um, the kind of trust you described. So I am in favor of what you, of what you argued. Um, other points. Um, scale. That was a big question. Um, uh, it was a scale question, actually, if I may say so. That's a joke. <laughs> Not one of you laughed, really, until I told you it was a joke. Uh, um, to one extent, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm not... Um, I haven't got a good answer for you. Um, I, don't think, I don't think that... Um, um, and I, I'm not entirely... I mean, when you, were, when, you were, when you were forming your question, I was thinking one of the reasons that for the justification of high CEO pay these days is that the organizations they run have become more and more complicated. So there's a kind of, you know, uh, and, that, and that complexity itself is a source of, in that sense, a source of unfairness, um, which, I th which is how I understood your question. Um, but I need to unravel that perhaps over a glass of wine with you because I'm, I'm not going to take, I'm going to take you too long. Can I please interject one phrase which I meant to put to you? Yeah. Which is that whatever and whenever I read about Adam Smith, the criticism that it doesn't apply today is that the, the, the hidden hand does not exist. But the hidden hand that was referred to was of a much smaller population where the reach was much more humane and within human social control. And that if we decentralize and restructure in an ordered way so that it's more accountable, more transparent, <coughs> right through the set of systems that we bring back the hidden hand. Okay, I understand you. Um, yeah, I mean I think this I mean I think the market is a discovery process and remains a discovery process actually. But you I mean I this is another kind of dimension of, of my God, the so it's like a matrix, isn't it? And it's kind of, you know, all the you know thoughts compiling in and I you get kind of completely come in from the side here with a argument about, about complexity and scale as actually being the kind of enemy of just outcomes. Um, I, I don't I don't um, and is it necessary to scale back to get fairness? I'm sympathetic, but I don't go with you all the way. Uh, and that's all I can say. Because um, it's too complicated. Um, yes, students should. I mean, uh, there is a whole thing here. There's a whole passion in my book about the uh, 
complete unfairness of the intergenerational bargain in 2010. I mean, here I am, I'm 60 years old, I sit in equity in my home, you know, I built up my pension, I had a free, not free in my case actually, I mean, I still, we had to pay a small amount to go to university, but it was tiny compared, um, and so and so forth, a full employment throughout my life, you know, and my generation, how lucky we were, and we sit on all these bloody assets, and we should be disproportionately um, uh, paying taxes, fees, um, to ensure that you know, there are employment opportunities for 18 to 24 year olds. We can't ask you to take the burden of um, debt that you are taking on without actually taking some responsibility, in fact the responsibility, for furnishing employment opportunity and to ask you to have, I don't know how much debt you've got, probably must be approaching 50k, then to have a world of unpaid internships. Um, it's outrageous, it's unfair, and the intergenerational nature of the unfairness is where I, I, I focus my eye. That's one of the reasons why this language is so useful uh, as I come to David's points. Because um, it allows me, um, oh, there's the point about propaganda, sorry. Um, uh, look, I mean, I, I think in a way I can answer your question with the same, which is a, a, a variant of the same question that David asked, which was, you know, how can you make, a, how can you map a difference between Cameron Clegg and, and Ed Miliband um, in the in this uh, and as it's the Miliband lecture, and as Ed's mothers in the audience, uh, uh, I'll navigate this very carefully. Um, um, the um, uh, I've already said there's a libertarian view of fairness and an egalitarian view of fairness, and I think conservatives lean to libertarian views of fairness, and. Uh, you know, and there's always going to be an argument about that, because you know, as you say, there's a you know, that value system, you know, isn't going to go away, nor should it, and it sits there, it coexists with, you know. Um, but they're with, all in favour of funding the NHS. They're all in favour of the 50p uh, increasing a new 50p tax ban, for instance. Well, so many of these key reforms, which uh, well, no, they're not. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I will hold on. They're in favour of the 50p tax limit, 50p rate for this parliament, whereas Ed Miliband has said something much more profound about taxation, which he thinks that it's, um, it, it should be more, um, this isn't a temporary act of redistribution, it should be a permanent act of redistribution, and I agree with him on that. Um, so there's a, and he, and he would say that because he would lean towards uh, uh, a, a due desert or an egalitarian view of fairness against a libertarian view of fairness, which says, huh, we're all in this together for you know, the three, four years that the crisis is on, but as soon as it's over, it's chocks away and down to a low tax world. And that is a kind of, I think that's a bit of a debate, actually, David. Um, on the National Health Service, you know. I'm here still. <laughs> I haven't left, Will. But there's a, your boy language is all kind of sagging, you know. No, on the contrary, it's very relaxed. But, uh, you know, uh, um, and I think that, I, think that um, I do think that New Labour, um, you know, very seriously lost its way um, in its 13 years in, in office. I've already mentioned um, Lord Mandelson's comment about, you know, high incomes. I mean, I, I was shocked when I started this pay review, which is basically arguing, asking the question, should a 21 pay norm exist in the public sector? And interestingly, to what extent could it become a social norm in the private sector? Now, uh, when Gordon Brown 
uh, was asked to kind of give the, the yes to such a review, he said, no, I'm not, I can't do that. I might be thought to be anti-business. You know, so I mean, uh, you know, there is a way. You, know, you have to. Uh, I mean, why has why did the left lose its you know, ideological bearings to the extent it did in that 13-year period? And one of the reasons it did lose its ideological bearings, in my view, was that if at the very least it had, it had you know, subscribed to the kind of, you know, what I laid out tonight, you know, it would have made differences between the deserving and the undeserving rich. It would have been concerned about disproportionately high pay. It would have been, it would have, you know, argued for you know, inheritance tax in the way that I've argued for it. It would have, you see what I, and these are, and, the, and you know, Ed, who, who, has to do so many things simultaneously. He has to kind of reconstruct a kind of a viable philosophy for the left that allowed him to build a coalition between the centre and the left, without which you cannot win in the British parliamentary, the way the British voting system is structured, even with an AV system, it's even more acute. He has to do that. He has to rebuild his coalition. He's got a, you know, parts of the constituents in his coalition need reform themselves, you know, like the trade union movement. I mean, the trade union movement, it seems to me, um, you know, has an, if, if, you, if a trade unionist was, you know, I've had a debate with a trade unionist, and perhaps I should do this, is that, uh, you know, trade unionism flips in my world from being, you know, the, the kind of industrial wing of the political force that's going to transform capitalism. You know, the trade union movement becomes something very different. The trade union movement becomes the fundamental institution in the workplace that holds capitalism to account for being fair and proportional. You know, it's a different conception of trade unionism. And by the way, most people don't want to join trade unions that actually are oppositional or define themselves in that kind of 19th century discourse. They want to join trade unions who I think, you know, belong to the discourse I've just kind of outlined. So, you know, where the left needs to sit in this debate about fairness is very different from where it actually is. You know, coming from a 13-year period in which it's had zero ideology, really, and lost its compass, you know, didn't even know it was for fairness, for God's sake, um, you know, got itself compromised, you know, so profoundly on constitutional issues and civil liberty issues, it wasn't true. I mean, my God, and, and indulged the financial sector to do what they did in 2008. I mean, what a record. And, you know, they have to pick themselves up. And the fact that they're non-differentiable at the moment from the values of the coalition government is in a sense because Ed has got, you know, he's got a hew something out of, you know, Clay, which was, should have been done by his predecessors. Now, Cameron and Clegg, you know, have, um, the coalition government is a curate's egg. I mean, bits of it, the Lib Dem bit, and the liberal conservative bit on constitutional and justice issues, you know, does lean towards the kind of things I've been saying tonight. Ken Clark, you know, talking about rehabilitation of prisoners, or um, uh, uh, you know, the, the Fair Pay Commission I'm doing are, I think, or indeed the Banking Commission on, on reviewing the financial system, much better than other parts of the coalition, which is a real curate's egg. I mean, some bits are horror story, other bits are. Okay, are there value judgments? Um, there certainly are, and I've, you know, I, and I've incorporated them in my, in my idea. And if you think that um, some of the Gulf states or some of the countries that have ideas of fairness are fair by the standards I've um, set tonight, or manage to combine it with any kind of economic and social dynamism, then I'm a monkey. <laughs>
as we would say, that is the wrong question, because <laughs> he's self-evidently not. Anyway, a fighting finish, Will. Um, thank you very much. To remind you, the book is outside if you want to take the arguments further. Will will stay here to sign copies. That well, that, well, I stay here, do I? Yeah, you stay here. So you go and buy them, and I stay here, I think. No, I don't go and buy them. You give me a copy. But the other <laughs> people go and buy them, and then they come and sign them. Uh, and, There's a uh, melee of the three people who buy them. So it just, yeah. it just, it just <laughs> remains for me to thank Will very much, and uh, I look forward to taking the arguments. Thank you very much for coming and listening to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.